pray, shall we? Our God and Father, we thank you that you've allowed us to come today. Lord, you invite us to come. You command us to come to praise you. You command us to come to worship. And so, Lord, as we wait for you, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word. I pray that through these lips, these stammering lips, Lord, that you will uh, present your truth and may it find lodging in our hearts, that we might be a little bit more like you as a result of today's instruction in your word. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher, and we will give you thanks and praise for what you will do in Jesus' name. We're going to jump into Scripture this morning with very little lead in. And you know how we normally work, right? I, I, try to, I try to ease us into the message to kind of get us set and warmed up and things like that, but we're not going to do that today because this is about truth, about relationships. It's about the gospel of Christ. It's about affection and comfort and so much more. So there's a lot here that we need to, to get to, so we, we're going to just dive right in. But by way of personal testimony, sometimes when I prepare the message, you know, things just kind of flow together. And as I pray and meditate on the passage and look into the original languages and the background and all that kind of thing, it, it, it doesn't take a long time until I begin to see and hear what the Lord is saying in this passage. But this week, not so much. It was really difficult for me this week, and I couldn't figure out heads or tails why this passage is here in this place. It seemed to be out of place, and I was confused. And certainly, this is God's truth, you know, and and Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. There's nothing wrong with the text. The problem was me. I was the problem trying to figure it out. I even called up my mentor, Mark Severson. I said, you got to pray for me because I, I can't figure out what's going on here. And, you know, it's vital that when anybody comes to the Scriptures, that we understand what God is trying to say here. And we need to understand as much as possible and discern why He wrote it. What did God say in His Word? See, we're not allowed to make something up and pretend that this is what it's saying. That results in false teaching, that results in false applications and damage to our soul. And with a little help from learned men and women in the books I have access to, and by the Spirit of God teaching me, I was able to understand what our passage is today, why it's here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16. This is right after Paul talks about separating, uh, the Corinthians separating from false teachers. Now, as we get into this, it seems as though Paul did kind of like a 180. Instead of warning them about, you know, about what was going on, he then went out of his way to commend and encourage them. But to help us understand this portion of Scripture, though, we need to review the journey that Paul took to get to where we are here in this passage. Then we're going to jump into the passage for today, but we need to walk through the timeline first. Now, there are 10 steps that we're going to take, and then we will jump to the passage. And so let's run through these steps. Step one is that Paul visited Corinth. He established a church, and he was there for about 18 months. Step two, he caught wind of some of their problems and then wrote a letter to the Corinthians that we don't have, and it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Step three, he followed that letter up with writing what we call 1 Corinthians. And step four, At the end of 1 Corinthians, 
Paul promises that he would spend time with them, and he, would get, and he gave them a rough time for his arrival, a rough timeline. And five, Paul could not fulfill his promise to visit the Corinthians when he said he was going to do it because of all the opportunities and the difficulties of the ministry where he was. And step six, in, in the meantime, things went south in Corinth. False teachers entered the church and convinced one of the influential leaders there to turn his back on Paul and the true gospel and to follow them. How do they get this influential leader to believe them and not Paul? You know, it's a simple tactic, really. And it's key that we understand this. And we need to keep this in mind because we're going to revisit this in a little bit. In step seven, Paul heard about this particular problem that threatened to undo the church. He cut his ministry efforts short and apparently paid the Corinthians an unannounced visit. He blasted the false teachers. He rebuked the influential letter, a leader, and then he left. Step eight, Paul left a lot of spiritual carnage in his wake with that visit. And every time he thought about how he treated them and what he did, it didn't sit right with him. So he wrote a difficult, tear-stained letter and had Titus play the part of mailman to deliver that message to the Corinthians. Now, in 2 Corinthians, he tells why he wrote this strong emotional letter in chapter 2, verse 4. He said, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. Step 9, Titus caught up with Paul and gave him a great report of how they received the letter and his ministry. Now, part of what Paul heard was that the other leaders in the church in Corinth took this influential leader to task, and they were severe in their church discipline. As a matter of fact, they overdid things, and they refused to forgive this guy who was leading other people astray. In step 10, Paul then wrote the letter that's in front of us, 2 Corinthians. As we remember so far in this letter, he defended the authority that the Lord gave him for building up the Corinthians and not for tearing them down. In chapters 3 through 6 of this letter, he reminded the Corinthians of the true nature of the gospel that Paul preached. Paul emphasized the gospel's work in the believer in this life as the Lord prepares his people for life in the next life, particularly at the judgment seat of Christ. And then Paul gave the Corinthians his credentials of his character qualities, his experiences, almost like a resume to show that it was him, not the false teachers, who had the true gospel. Now, Paul blasted the false teachers and warned the Corinthians to return to the truth three times. He said, be reconciled to God. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. And then today, as we will hear, make room in your hearts for us. Now, I said all that because in our passage for today, Paul picks up where he left off in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. In fact, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You know, the phrase circling back is kind of, is kind of in vogue today. And so what we're going to do... We're going to circle back here to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, to remind us of where Paul stopped in telling his story. He says, When I came to Troas, 
to preach the gospel of Christ. Even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But with that said, let's now go to our passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 16, to pick up where we left off in chapter 2. Now, I hope I didn't overly complicate matters in this, but I really feel like we need to understand the backstory so that we can understand and apply God's Word to our lives today. Now, in this passage for today, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 2 to 16, we're going to see as Paul kind of finishes up really what amounts to the major portion of this letter. And first thing we're going to talk about today is Paul's testimony about the Corinthians in chapter in, in verses 2 through 5. Second, we're going to discover what Titus reported to Paul regarding the Corinthians in verses 6 through 8. Then we're going to see that the Corinthians actually repented. They turned back to the truth in verses 9 to 13. And finally, we're going to experience Paul rejoicing over the Corinthians in verses 14 to 16. So let's begin our passage by reading 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 5. So if you have it out, great. If not, pull your Bible out and, and, let, and let's uh, read together here. Paul says, Make room in your heart for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted in every turn, fighting without and fear within. This is Paul's testimony of how much he loved the Corinthians. But his love fueled by truth. Now, truth sometimes wounds. Would you agree with that? Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 tells us this. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Notice, wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Once again, Paul laid bare his heart out of his affection for the Corinthians. You know, when you love someone, you're willing to risk the relationship, aren't you? Where sometimes the other person even walks away or is tempted to. And as an aside, I'd much rather have someone tell me stuff that matters, as in what I need to hear, than to only hear stuff that flatters. What about you? Now, Paul lets the Corinthians in on what's going on in his heart. And to sum up his pleading to them, he emphasizes three things in verse 2. He says, they have wronged no one. They have corrupted no one. They've taken advantage of no one. Now, all of us who have followed with what Paul is saying here in this letter can see that this is really an attack, again, on the false teachers. See, we have not wronged anyone like the false teachers who have wronged others with their religious teaching. We've not corrupted anyone with the false gospel. We've not taken advantage of anyone like the enemies of the gospel have in their relationship with you, my dear Corinthians. And though Paul does not name names here, it's obvious to the Corinthians who he's talking about. And when we think about the false teachers in our day, we know that they're doing grave damage 
to the gospel. We need to avoid them like the plague because they're a plague on the soul. Remember how Paul described the false teachers of his day? They're non-believers. They're on their way to a Christless eternity in hell. Because they're non-Christians, they practice lawlessness. They live in spiritual darkness, and they're even in league with Satan. It's not just another, another, another view out there. These guys are enemies. In our day, false teaching along with the teacher has two rotten parts. First, incomplete or twisted teaching about who Jesus Christ is. I mentioned last week that we must not be guilty of selective reading when we study the life of Christ and who He claimed to be. The second rotten part is a perversion of grace as God defines grace, not as we define grace. You know, Titus 2, 11 to 14 emphasizes that the one who has received the grace of God is in a lifelong training toward being like Jesus. So we can sum up this part here with the two questions that Paul asked the Lord Jesus when he met him on the road to Damascus. Remember that? He asked him two questions. He said, first of all, Lord, who are you? And second is, Lord, what would you have me to do? These are the two things that we must be always asking. Lord, who are you? When we're going before the Lord and and reading about him in the scriptures, and the Lord, what would you have me to do? Now, in verses 3 to 5, Paul heaps up words that would have been impossible for him to utter had he not himself become a Christian. He says, I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Notice his description of the Corinthians. You're in our hearts. Great boldness, great pride, filled with comfort, filled with joy. Remember what this entire letter is all about. As I coined it a little while ago, Paul's dist authority. Now, Paul poured his life into the Corinthians for a year and a half, and he was teaching them the truth of God for all throughout that time. And doubtless, he thought everything was going great when he left them to go to other parts to do ministry in other places until, until the false teachers came in and tried to discredit Paul, aiming at his character. They certainly felt that they could convince the Corinthians that Paul's character was deceptive. Then they could be rightly questioned, how could he then give them the truth? Remember when I said that the false teachers used a simple tactic to sway at least one member of the leadership to get them to go their way? Well, here it is. Here's their tactic. It was a small thing, really, but the false teachers blew it way out of proportion. And what was that thing? Of all things, it was Paul's travel plans. He addresses it in the first parts of this letter, chapters 1 and 2. Again, Paul told them that he was going to spend time with them, but because of the opportunities and difficulties of the ministry, his time with them was delayed. He couldn't get there when he said he was going to. Apparently, the false teachers pounced on that to get their foot in the door. And this is why Paul addresses this, his travel plans, at the end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2. 
See, Paul was not vacillating in his travel plans. He wasn't saying, well, I don't know. And there was a reason why he didn't come. He said, to spare them an unannounced, another unannounced, painful visit where he would have to deal with their sin. But for the false teachers, it was their golden opportunity. I can imagine them saying to the Corinthians, see, Corinthians, see, Paul promised that he would come to you at a certain time, and he didn't. It's clear that Paul lied to you. And if he can lie to you about such a small thing, then how can you believe him when he tells you of spiritual things, things that really matter? Paul revealed his character, Corinthians. He was unfaithful in something small. That makes him unfaithful in the big things. Now, there is some redeeming value in this notion. Character counts. Lifestyle counts, as we heard our brother John talk about this. We need to be bearing fruit, right? See, we can't very well proclaim Jesus to be our Lord and Savior if in reality He's not our Lord and Savior, right? See, our Lord said it plainly, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? We're following Jesus as our Lord. That means He is in what relationship to us? He's our boss. He is our master. We are to obey him. This is the bottom line. But the false teachers spun things to their advantage. They lied about Paul, and they accused him of lying to the Corinthians. And tragically, the Corinthians began to believe the lie and begun to turn their back on Paul and the gospel of Christ. This is what had Paul so concerned. But as a fallen though redeemed man, doubtless Paul was hurt. And his demonstration of his forgiveness to the Corinthians, though, is challenging to see, isn't it? Because what's the typical response of us when we get betrayed? I don't get mad. I get even, exactly. But Christians controlled by the Spirit of God don't respond that way. Isn't that true? If we say, I get mad, I don't get mad, I get even, guess what's not happening there? The Spirit of God is not controlling us at that point. And we got to confess our sin. But you know, it reminds me of what the Lord Jesus went through on the last night that he was with his men before he was crucified at the Last Supper. He knew that Judas was practically out the door to betray him. Peter would soon declare his undying pledge to lay down his life for him, but Jesus knew that that pledge would be short-lived. And Jesus knew that every one of his disciples would tuck tail and run when their skin was on the line. Yet, what did Jesus do? He got up, took off his outer garments, poured water into a basin. He went to each disciple and washed their feet. Such forgiveness and such servanthood given by the master. And to bring it down to our level today, how many times have you beaten yourself up over and over again over that same sin you keep doing only to find the Spirit of God tenderly washing over your soul as He tells you, Jesus died for you. You're forgiven. See, because Paul was forgiven, he was able to forgive the Corinthians and say to them, you're in our hearts. 
I've got great boldness, great pride, filled with comfort. I'm filled with joy. What about you? What about me? See, forgiveness is paramount with us as followers of Jesus. Isn't that true? It's been said that we are no more like Jesus than we forgive others who have sinned against us. And if we've forgiven others, we can then speak well of others from the heart. If we have not forgiven others, then we cannot do this, or at least not for very long. See, our words and attitudes will eventually reveal our unforgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Literally, to the same level that God has forgiven us in Christ is the level that we need to forgive one another. How many of your sins, how many of my sins has Jesus forgiven? All of them. So how many sins do we need to forgive our brother and sister? All of them, every one of them. What a great testimony Paul gave of his beloved Corinthians with their relationship based on the mercy and grace of God oiled with forgiveness. And now in verses 6 through 8, let's discover what Titus reported to Paul about how the Corinthians received his strong letter and how they felt about Paul and the gospel. He says, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, Corinthians, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you for only a little while. That's a mouthful there, isn't it? But that makes one go, hallelujah. See, Paul's broken heart over how he so forcefully dealt with the Corinthians have had the best effect it could have had. Though we don't know what the words he wrote in that letter were, we do know the outcome. See, longing and mourning and zeal were music to Paul's ears. Now, let's not misunderstand. See, Paul was not saying something like what Sally Field admitted when she has received an Oscar for her performance in Places in the Heart. See, she said this. She says, I've wanted more than anything to have your respect. Right now, you like me. Yeah, great. See, Paul was not looking for admiration from the Corinthians. All he wanted to hear were words from the Lord Jesus. Well done, good and faithful servant. But for him to hear from Titus of their respect for him meant this, that they did not turn their back on the gospel. For after all, if it wasn't for those scoundrels who attempted to lead the Corinthians away from the gospel, Paul would not have had to react the way that he did. Paul had only one thing on his mind. Corinthians, follow Christ. He is the Lord. We are all his servants and we are your servants for Jesus' sake. See, Paul knew his place as the Lord's servant. That's why he was able to receive, to absorb all the misuse, all the abuse that the Corinthians wielded at him. He did not, he did not retaliate, in the, especially in this delicate time in their strained relationship. 
But now that the letter had its hope-for effect, Paul can now relax. As I mentioned before, faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, friendly wounds heal us and make us stronger. But let me say this in passing concerning our culture. Our culture is training us to hate one another. Cancel culture is the name of the game. We are not allowed, so they say, to wound one another, as in like giving the friendly wounds, the wounds of a friend, as in telling us, or us telling each other, even in the church, what we need to hear. They tell us that we can only say things that do not make anyone feel ashamed in any way. That's why there is rarely any talk about sin, for example. But see, if we're not allowed to talk about sin, then how can we talk about Jesus? We can only talk about Jesus in one way, in a way that we imagine him to be, or as the culture imagines him to be. See, we're not allowed to talk about Jesus dying for our sins if we can't mention sin. Isn't that true? So what do we do? We prefer to make Jesus out to be a martyr or a victim or one who is in the wrong place at the wrong time. See, all Jesus did was suffer for our mistakes. We have to avoid at all costs telling someone that they are sinners in rebellion against God. But as Christians, not as followers of the PC crowd, not as cancel culture people, as Christians, let's follow Paul's example. Let's adopt Paul's mentality. When we sin, it's not a mistake because Christ did not die for mistakes. He died for sin. And love takes the risk, doesn't it, to call out one another's sin. Now, of course, we do this discreetly. We do this with a prepared heart. We make sure that our hearts are right before the Lord, before we approach them. We gain the right attitude by spending a lot of time in the Lord's presence. We pray and we weep over the sin of our brother or sister before we approach them. But approach them, we must. As Paul experienced, dealing with sin is a grievous, regrettable thing. So let's help, let's help one another as we walk with one another toward Christ's likeness by inflicting loving wounds on one another. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And when sin gets dealt with the right way, what is the result? Joy. Paul was able to rejoice because of the Corinthians' repentance. You see, as, as we're going to see this here in verses 9 to 13. So follow me with this. As it is, Paul says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For you see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you is not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us 
might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So let me point out here how grief and repentance go together. See, in our lives as humans and especially as Christians, we suffer over our sin. Now, the suffering usually results in our emotions being affected. As humans, we sorrow when we understand that we are guilty before God and we deserve His judgment, His wrath. And when we do, in the midst of our emotions, we come to a crossroads and we have a choice to make. Now, one choice is to blame the whole mess on others. How often do we do that? See, this is normal. This is natural, isn't it? It started way back with Adam and Eve. Now, Adam and Eve both did this. Remember Adam? He said, hey, God, you gave me this woman, and I blame you, Lord, ultimately. Can you imagine the audacity of Adam doing this? Eve blamed it on the snake. But God placed the blame where it rightly belongs, on their shoulders. And he unfolded his plan to get rid of sin. In Leviticus 17, 11, he says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And at just the right time, what did the Father do? He sent his Son to be his Lamb, to take away the sin of the world. Hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? So the suffering we experience over our sin can drive us to blame others and save ourselves, save our own value of ourselves, save our own emotions, whatever the case may be. And what happens? We continue then down a life of destruction. A second way of dealing with suffering over our sin is to go to the Lord and, being, and, and be saved by receiving, receiving His mercy. But how do we do that? It requires that we turn around it requires that we leave our path of destruction. It requires that we go to God, and that's called repentance. See, when Titus gave Paul the news that they turned their backs, that the Corinthians turned their backs on the false teachers, Paul knew that he was seeing true repentance take place in their lives and that the gospel was indeed at work in their lives. Again, the Corinthians were at a crossroads. Paul warned them strongly about the false teachers. Then they turned away from their lies and returned to the truth. Indeed, their grief was a godly grief, and this godly grief produced in them a whole set of godly responses. Same with us. When we repent of our sins, of a certain sin, for example, as Christians, it affects our minds, doesn't it? We change our minds on this. We change our thoughts about it. We see it for what it is, and we stop making excuses for it. Repentance affects our emotions as well. Instead of sort of being attracted to it by our emotions, it's now a revulsion to us. And then it affects our will as well. We change our behavior when it comes to repentance. We just don't say, I don't do it. We actually don't do it, right? And I will say that if we don't experience 
these things in our mind, our will, and our emotions, we don't have true repentance yet. And so let me suggest strongly that all of us, when we're dealing with these sins and we're repenting, we stay in the Lord's presence until these things are affected in us, until God does His good work inside of us. Now, we're all familiar with 1 John 1.9, aren't we? When we confess our sins, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because He is faithful and He's just. To confess means this, to say the same thing about it as God says about it. See, it's not a mistake. It's not a generalized, I blew it. It's a form of rebellion against holy God. Every sin is like that. And we deserve His wrath over it. But because Jesus shed His blood for us, we can appeal to that sacrifice. Therefore, we must repent concerning the sin we are confessing. And when we do, like Paul and now Titus, what do we get? What do we get in return? We get His comfort. And the bottom line for this is this. Sin destroys. Let's not miss this. Any sin destroys us. But godly sorrow and confession and repentance and forgiveness all work together to bring us God's comfort and restored fellowship with Him and with others. What a deal. Finally, verses 14 to 16, we see Paul rejoicing over the Corinthians. For whatever boast I made, Paul says to him about you, Corinthians, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus was true. And this affection for you is even, his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. And I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Let me make a brief comment as we wrap up this message, though we could spend a lot of time in these verses. Before Paul sent Titus to Corinth, he spoke very highly of the Corinthians. And the Corinthians, when he was in their presence, did not disappoint. Titus expected a good reception from the Corinthians because of what Paul had said, and he received an even better one. Praise be to the Lord. It was a group of humble, obedient members of the body of Christ. Isn't that great? This was far more than what Paul expected and they, uh, of, the, of the reception they gave Titus, and Paul greatly rejoiced. And with this great report now, the air is clear between the Corinthians and Paul. The Corinthians realized and rejoiced over the truth expressed by the Lord Jesus, as he said, whoever is faithful in little is also faithful in much. They discovered that Paul indeed was faithful after all. And God, by His Spirit, enabled the Corinthians to overcome the lies of the false teachers. The Corinthians' confidence toward Paul was now restored. And now Paul can issue a renewed call to the Corinthians to demonstrate unity and love, not just among themselves, but to the body of Christ and other parts of the Roman Empire. And we're going to see this in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. So to bring this message to a close... Let me tie together the applications that I pointed out earlier. First, the gospel changes us. That's bottom line. The gospel changes us. It is everlasting truth that works in us to make us more like Jesus. 
And that's the purpose for which God gives His people His grace. And you know, all of us here in this room today, or those tuning on Facebook or wherever you hear this, all of us who are in the family of God, we know this to be true. The gospel changes us. The gospel is a thing of eternal life, Jesus says. So again, let me ask all of us to make sure that the gospel that we understand, the gospel that we have received is a gospel that has indeed changed us. Let's not settle for a cheap imitation. A very popular message which passes for the gospel in so many churches and with so many people kind of goes like this. Is summed up in a quote by Richard Niebuhr. He says, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Is that not what so many believe today? God just wants me to be a better person. That's not what the gospel is. Let's make sure that it is the Lord Jesus, the one who died for your sins and my sins, who is the one who has saved you, not some cheap imitation of who we want him to be in order to save our own pride. Second, if Christ has saved us, he has placed us by his spirit into his body. As members of the church of the Lord Jesus that he has been building for 2,000 years, God has called us to help one another to be more like Christ. He's called us to make disciples of one another. And that's his purpose for all of us as his, as his followers. Jesus tell, or God tells us through Paul, he says, the purpose for which God does everything in our lives is for one thing, that we might become more like Jesus. Romans 8.29 tells us this. We are to love one another. And sometimes this means out of love and concern for our brother, for our sister, we point out their sin. Again, we do it, we do it the way we're supposed to do it. We don't just, you know, just shout it out and, and beat them down. No, we go to them because we're concerned. We care for them. We do this in the right way, but we do this. And though we're concerned, though, for the welfare of our brothers and sisters, Let's not be afraid to risk the relationship because we want to be much more about the glory and honor of Christ than we are even our relationships here that we so highly value. Jesus laid it out for anybody to hear and to heed when he said this in Luke 9, 23 to 25. He said, to all, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man, a woman, a young person, if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? See, these activities of dying to ourselves, of denying ourselves, taking up our crosses daily, they're not for for special sold-out Christians who desire a deeper walk with God. No. Dying to ourself, taking up our cross, is a telltale sign that we are His followers. I heard it put by David Platt. He says, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, is the entrance requirement to being a Christian. And my challenge for all of us today is this. Where's your cross? Are you carrying it? Are you bearing it? 
Let's bear it for his sake. For in bearing our cross, we are telling one another, I am your servant, brother, sister, and you are my servant, brother, sister. And we are servants together of the one who died and rose again, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in reconciled relationships. You've created us in your image, Lord, that we we might walk with one another and not hurting one another. You've called us, Lord, to live in relationship with each other. But even more importantly, vastly more importantly, you've called us to live in relationship with you. Because, Lord, every one of us has a nature that's prone to sin, a nature that's prone to put me first and others last. Lord, we sin against each other. Lord, we so often lie. We hear lies. We believe lies. But Lord Jesus, you are the one who tells the truth. Father, you are the only true and living God. It is impossible for you to lie. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you came. And when you stood before Pilate, you made that good confession. You said, I came to bear witness to the truth. And on one level, that's why you died. You hung on the cross because of truth. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us as your people to speak truth, to love truth, to love one another. Sometimes that means we call out sin, but we do it in a way that does not demean people. We do it in a way that seeks to restore relationships. And Lord, we thank you for the life-giving gospel, the gospel that changes us. We thank you, Lord. We don't want to live in sin. And I pray, Lord, that you help each one of us to be ever more committed to who you are and what you've done for us as we reflect your ways in our lives. So, Lord, I thank you for these things. I pray that you will seal these things to our hearts. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be more like you. Help us, Lord, to love you. Help us, Lord, to love you more and to serve you better because you loved us first. And now I thank you, Lord, for this time of giving. I thank you also now, Lord, for this time of our singing. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to do these things as an act of worship to you because you alone deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.